excited to get this one underway. I'm sure we're going to cover it all. But Mark, I mean, I mean, we we talked a lot personally over the weekend, just about the, the kind of state of things, everything from the crypto markets to the macro. I know is is you know your your bread and butter. Is there anything in particular like you want to touch on that you've been thinking of that's top of mind for you at the moment? Shoot, I mean, there's nothing more top of mind than you know the cryptocurrency space melting down. Obviously, you know the FTX debacle that pulling everything else down. It's, you know, I think if Bitcoin didn't have enough headwind already, uh, just by global macro, you know, Bitcoin trades like a tech stock, although it's not a tech stock. And so that's our opportunity, right? That's the difference of perception and reality. We know that Bitcoin's not, and eventually it will trade. It won't be trading like a tech stock, but it, but it is trading like that. And it's been, it's certainly in the backseat of this global macro picture. So when we're looking at you know, what's happening in the global bond market, the sovereign debt market, et cetera. But now we're, now we're being dragged around by the, the greater cryptocurrency market. And, you know, anytime you see a massive liquidity event, you know, go back to, I mean, the March of 2020 crash or back to the 2008 crash, et cetera. I mean, anything that has any type of liquidity just goes down with it. And so I think that's normal. And that's what we're seeing right now, obviously with this, this recent, you know, this FTX situation, the whole cryptocurrency market is scrambling for any type of liquidity that they can. And so then the most liquid things go on fire sell. And so that's what happens. And we can see, you know, back in 2008, gold sold off just with the stock market as well. Just like in 2020, we saw gold and Bitcoin both sell off at the same time. But it's what happened after is, I think, the key thing for me to focus on, right? So in 2008, gold sold off with the stocks but it sold off about 25% when stocks sold off almost 60%. So 25% is better than 60%. But then within seven months, it reclaimed its all-time high. Gold did and went on to make massive new highs from there, whereas stocks took about seven years just to reclaim its high. Same thing in 2020, we saw Bitcoin and gold both sell off, but it's what happened after. And so Bitcoin took off from whatever his low what, 3,800 and then went as high as 70,000. So I think, you know, we're seeing that same thing happening right now. And- you know, hopefully we'll see see the same response. But anyway, I would say just this this tighter macro or this kind of FTX cryptocurrency microcosm is probably the top of mind. I mean, that's that's what dominates the headlines right now. I'm curious, Mark. What, by the way, it's good to see you, man. It was fun to hang out with you over the weekend too. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts. Like, do you think that the contagion risk is over with this whole FTX thing, or do you think there's more to come in the coming weeks? Unfortunately, I'm I'm gonna have to say I think there's more coming in in the weeks and months ahead. And I think I think that for a couple of reasons. So obviously, we know there's a, a massive hole at Alameda. You know, potentially ten billion dollars. And we don't know who has exposure to that, right? We're starting to see more and more of that. We saw today Travis Kling from Ikigai Fund said that they had their funds parked on FTX, right? And so, like, um, I mean, and they're, they're a smaller, they're a smaller player, but we're just starting to see more and more of this. Obviously, you know, Binance had all their user funds on there that all got locked up, and so I think it's going to be uh, a while for this to unravel. I mean, we we're seeing. Some really, really fishy data coming out of the smaller exchanges, Huobi, KuCoin, Crypto.com, et cetera, transferring hundreds of millions of dollars back and forth. Looks like it's wash trading. And, you know, right now, as it should be, we're seeing lots of users run for the exits. And so we're seeing massive bank runs or liquidity, liquidity being pulled from the exchanges. And so that's going to create problems. You know, a lot of these exchanges that might kind of be okay once they're facing bank runs, it's going to put them into serious situations because they probably sitting on lots of illiquid assets. And so unfortunately, I think it, it, it's problematic because of that. And then 
I also think that it's going to be a massive call for more regulations. And so that's going to put the entire industry into a tailspin. You know, most likely everything but Bitcoin will be deemed a security, which then means all the exchanges then have to register as security providers or kick out U.S. people. And if that happens, that's even more liquidity events happening. And so, unfortunately, uh, I think there's probably more pain ahead in, in that. I love it. And I think you brought up a great point. And, you know, one of the things that I think about a lot is what will happen to the greater crypto industry as a whole once regulation is finally here. And I do think it's finally coming, right? Probably within the next year or two, we'll see some significant regulation. My personal opinion is that like 90% of crypto, maybe more, will, will just kind of disappear and go away if they do get regulated and they become securities as they probably should be. Curious your thoughts on that. Do you think the crypto industry survives regulation? Does it just get driven away from the United States and continue on elsewhere? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I think, I, I think yeah, it, it kind of goes away and in some sense, it kind of gets reborn. And so at the, at the event this weekend, Michael Saylor kind of gave the closing, closing talk and he made a really, really good point. And he basically said that coin is the only digital asset or commodity that has no issuer. So if you think about commodities or assets, right? So oil, gold, wheat, they don't have issuers. Now, if I have a piece, if I'm going to go buy a piece of land, I can grow wheat or I can mine for gold or I can drill for oil, but there's really no issuer. And same with Bitcoin, where I can buy a computer and I can mine for Bitcoin as well, but there's no issuer there. And so I think that distinction, and of course, the SEC and the CFTC have been uh, very clear about Bitcoin not being a, uh, a security, right? It's a commodity. And so that's kind of the point Mike Saylor said. And I think that the, that's a great point for people to kind of hone in on. And I've been, <laughs> I've been honing on in on the last couple of days. And so I think this is going to bring way more scrutiny down onto the, onto the crypto space. And I think even like with Ethereum, which kind of the SEC has been sort of wishy-washy on it. Obviously, they've been ruling on some smaller ones like the, like the library situation of a week or two ago. But I think the, the merge, I mean, and I'm not a securities expert, but I think the merge that Ethereum did pushes it more towards a security, right? Because now it's even more centrally controlled and managed. I mean, now they're locking up user funds and they have this dev team that's kind of steering the direction of it. And so... Again, not being a securities lawyer or expert here, but it seems like it even falls more under that. And I think everything else does. And if, and if, I, if I talk broadly about the cryptocurrency space, and I've, I, I kind of got involved in the cryptocurrency space in 2015. And for like four years, I, I was doing like research on all these cryptocurrency companies. And, you know, it, it was new and it was exciting. And it was fresh. There was all these things happening. But and before Bitcoin kind of got its start with like its own Bitcoin conference, there was the consensus conference, which is the cryptocurrency conference. And I would go there, you know, every year I'd go there. And I was there in Austin this year in June. And when I was there, and I was like, what is this? Like, what is going on here? It's like so confusing. I don't, I'm not sure what's going on. And I left that conference going, think cryptocurrency as a category will probably be gone in the next couple of years. And, and what do I mean by that? Well, in, in the late 90s, just after I'd gone out of high school, uh, me and my roommate, like we started day trading these like weird things that nobody knew about. They were called internet stocks. And we sounded like these weirdos, like talking about all these companies that nobody knew what we were talking about. But today there's no such thing as internet stocks, right? They're just companies. And so we have like this category of cryptocurrency, but at the consensus, what we really had was we had all these video game companies 
And like these guys are trying to explain to me these video games and like my eyes are glazing over because I'm not like a gamer. And I'm like, why aren't you at a video game convention? Right. And then you get all these real estate people, they're doing NFTs and they're, they're, you know, uh, tokenizing real estate and title and all these things. And I'm like, well, then go to a real estate convention. And then you have all the supply chain guys. And it's like, we'll go to a supply chain convention. Right. You would not, you wouldn't have like an internet convention today. Like that just wouldn't make any sense. And so I think as a category, it's already kind of dying. And so kind of to the point you, you asked or the question you asked, Jeff, I think all of these are securities, right? I mean, if you're a central company and you want to roll out a token or a share of stock or whatever you want to call it, I mean, technically that's a security. And look, I'm, I'm the first one that's going to say, I do not think the government should regulate this. I think they should just shut down the SEC. I think they should just get rid of that. But it is what it is at this point. And so I think all of these cryptocurrencies, really these 20,000 cryptocurrencies, for the most part, except for some that are still trying to be layer ones, but for the most part, they're all applications, right? And so they're, they're, they're applications, they're companies, they're trying to do something. And, and ultimately, just like library was, was ruled on by the SEC, they're securities. And so I think what's going to happen is obviously once they have to file and register as securities, most of them won't be able to meet that bar. It's very expensive. And it's very laborious process in order to launch a security. So most of them just go away right off the bat. And again, being kind of around the cryptocurrency space for a long time and still having some ties and seeing how it works, the venture capitalists, they love crypto because what happens is this crypto project launches and they release whatever, 100 million tokens. And the VCs can pick them up at two, three cents, right? And then they instantly flip them for six, nine, 12 cents to their other funds that are nearby. And then they roll out into an exchange where they start trading at whatever the market maker set that price to be. And so the venture capitalists, they get multiples on their money back right away. And so they're funding these things like crazy. And all of that money that's come in by these VCs has really brought a lot of attention to the space. And everyone thinks it's the next greatest thing. But if it really was treated like a real company, where a real company had to produce a real product and had to sit down with real investors that had to give up real money, and didn't get that money back for seven to 10 years, like typically VCs do, you wouldn't see all this happening. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be there. And so to kind of summarize uh, the question you asked me, I think once they drop the hammer on the securities, most of it goes away. What doesn't go away gets formed up as companies, which are applications. And I believe all those applications will eventually get built on the Bitcoin blockchain. I love it, man. That's exactly how I feel about it too. So I'll stop so Sam and Dylan can ask you some questions. No, that's, that's probably a good segue into a question I had for you because it's something that I'm kind of working through myself and thinking about kind of Bitcoin adoption post this like pretty historic, you know, tragic week in, in some ways. And then also one of those weeks that's inevitable. It's kind of this uh, more macro liquidity tied washout that is affecting further along the risk curve here. But in terms of adoption, in terms of you know, getting more people, pushing them more towards Bitcoin, does an event like this kind of staying the industry in a way for, you know, months and years to come post this and kind of slow down adoption? Or in your view, is it something more that because of all these projects and tokens and things we're talking about, all these people getting burned, it, it highlights more of the case for Bitcoin and kind of why it's necessary? I think it's both, but I think ultimately it's a, it's a black, black eye, it's a stain, right? So I think Dylan was putting out some data this morning. Actually, he put out a chart I saw which shows like the amount of Bitcoin transactions and coming off the exchanges. And so I think the people that are already in crypto, 
that have been kind of in the crypto ecosystem for a while and kind of understand this, most of them realize that this was done by central entities. It wasn't because of, you know, crypto failing necessarily, but now they realize the danger of these central entities, specifically the danger of keeping their cryptocurrency on these centralized exchanges. And so those people are converting to Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is a net recipient from that, from the people inside the space. Now, some people probably, they, you know, who don't understand, they'll just, you know, take their losses and lick their wounds and go away. But a good majority of them will come to Bitcoin. So Bitcoin has an initial bump from that. The problem is, is, you know, us in the Bitcoin space, we try to say over and over that it's Bitcoin, not crypto. But, but for the greater space overall, you know, mainstream media, et cetera, they just don't understand that nuance. And so for them, I think it, it has a black eye. It has a stain. And I think, unfortunately, it probably sets it back. Now, that's also just a very U.S.-centric viewpoint. All right. So we have to kind of separate this. So from a U.S.-centric viewpoint where like the dollar seems to work pretty good. Yeah. I mean, it's inflating at, you know, whatever or debasing at 15%, 17% per year. But if you're in like, if you're one of 3 billion people living under super harsh authoritarian regimes with double to triple digit inflation, you don't really care about that, right? So if you're in Turkey and, you're, and the lira is plunging, you know, 80, 90% in a five-year period, you'll take that risk. So Bitcoin looks really good in, Tur in, in, the, in the Turkish lira. And so for the US-centric people, I think overall, maybe even some of the institutions come around a little bit slower. So maybe it holds back some of this institutional adoption. But I think globally, I think Bitcoin probably doesn't slow down much of it. They probably don't pay attention. They don't have the SEC rules and all that to deal with. Their pain is so high that they're already moving. So I, would, I, I think they will continue to be exploding. I mean, in Africa, 80% of all Bitcoin transactions under a thousand US dollars are being done in Africa. And I think that number will continue to grow. Obviously, Central America, El Salvador, et cetera, I think will continue to grow. The US institutions and whatnot, I expect it probably to slow down a little bit until this black eye heals. Yeah, definitely, definitely a black eye. I think the, the exchange withdrawal, like the withdrawals from exchange, I mean, kind of shows one, like, yeah, there was some, there was some paper Bitcoin out there, which you would think it would like almost suppress the price, but it was more so, I think, the, the leverage that FTX or Alameda or both of them had on, on trying to basically support this completely illiquid crypto market, like this whole thing cross-collateralized. And so, you know, Bitcoin's exchange rate takes a tumble, despite there being like, you know, seemingly like they were just like naked shorting Bitcoin. Who knows like how, how long uh, they were doing that for. I know as I was watching this whole thing unfold, I was watching FTX's Bitcoin open interest and I could see, I could just see that declining pretty massively by 20, 30,000 Bitcoin on the day of. Uh, or the day uh, before the collapse. So maybe that was them liquidating user, you know, even though it was like a, a futures open interest Bitcoin and not a spot Bitcoin, maybe that was them, you know, trying to just get as liquid as possible. But yeah, I, I just, I think like, yeah, it's a total black eye. Regulations are coming, uh, like you said, Mark. And, and the thing I'm interested in, and I haven't really seen much of this from the, the Ethereum on-chain sleuths uh, recently. I mean, I, I dabble, but I've, it's, I follow enough. Um, it's, it's hard to catch up on all of that. Is that, you know, we, we saw the, the kind of the hack after the fact, right? I think this was Friday or Saturday night. I think it was maybe Friday, right? Where like hundreds of millions of, whether it was a backdoor or it was like, you know, some, some, someone from the team just saying, you know, screw it. I'm just going to steal. He saw hundreds of, hundreds of millions of, of ETH and some stable coins get off FTX. It's really interesting to think about the game theory here of ETH moving to proof of stake. You know, it just got rid of its miners, got rid of its proof of work function. 
and and basically put this put the block production uh put the you know the block production into the hands of these centralized institutions or in, in into the hands of the stakers which are predominantly centralized institutions so so you know what's left of this crypto space well not a whole lot right we we kind of know that Solana was just SBF and Alameda kind of pumping their pumping their own bags it's just that all this stuff was artificially inflated Luna's obviously collapsed that happened months ago there doesn't seem to be much lasting here and and really like part of the reason why I think all of us are so dialed into Bitcoin is like okay I think whatever blows up whatever happens like there's this thing here that's gonna last so so yeah I mean I just you know in terms of the ethereum stuff I think like that's probably my my biggest thing like kind of behind the scenes that I'm looking out for is with all this regulation that we know is going to come down the pipe. I mean, none of it's been really addressed yet, right? But whether it's a C- the SEC or the CFTC or whatever it is, and even if Ethereum's not, you know, technically a security and it's still a kind of quasi commodity or whatever they want to define it as, I, th- I think the the OFAC compliance stuff, the regulation, the top down control is probably just beginning, unfortunately. And you can opt out at an individual level, but like that that belt's only tightening. I, I I think, you know, that's probably probably top of mind for me. And I think it's going to happen faster. You know, Dr. Jeff, you said, you know, over the next couple of years, I think this comes probably much, much faster. And part of the reason why I'd say that is obviously, you know, when the pain's high enough, you move. And so the pain is like super high. It's like super top of mind. Obviously, we also have, you know, Biden put those executive orders in, which was, you know, trying to increase uh, scrutiny on all this as well. Um, But also, you know, just getting through the midterms. And Dems kind of held on to a lot of the power, which was kind of surprising to a lot of people that paid attention to that. But I think now that we're past that, you know, now they kind of have like the next two years to kind of do whatever they want to do without having to worry about the election cycle. And so I think because all of that, you know, it's, it's the Elizabeth Warrens and whatnot that really, really, really want to move, move on this. And so I think it probably happens a little bit faster. Um, you know, one thing, Dylan, I wanted to ask you a question, you know, in regards to all that money moving off of the FTX change, it was about 800 million or almost $900 million that like disappeared. And then I think you had posted or I'd seen that, you know, or it's been going around that. And we talked about it at dinner that night on Saturday night that uh, they had $1.4 billion in Bitcoin claims with only 1.1 Bitcoin, like $20,000 worth of Bitcoin for $1.4 billion of claims, um, which seems like it was like a lot of paper trading. So people thought they were buying Bitcoin, but technically they weren't. <laughs> FTX might just be crediting the Bitcoin to their account. But then remember Michael Saylor said, no, that's not what it was. They just stole all the Bitcoin and it looked like it was still on the books. Have you seen anything or have you done any any, any data research into into that? Was it, Were people actually buying the paper Bitcoin or was it that they thought they had it and then FTX stole it and sent it out to Alameda or got hacked off? Yeah, I think, um, I think, and I don't know, because we can only see the, the outward facing, like from, for the, from the on-chain side of things, we can see what's actually in reserve. We can see, you know, basically their liabilities or, or their, uh, you know, the consumer claims, right? FTX is like Bitcoin or like the known Bitcoin hot while it was emptied out in the, the days leading up to into the insolvency, kind of as this whole FTT saga started to play out. Um, so I think that was probably when it was liquidated. I mean, who knows how, how far the prop is back. I somewhat presume that they were like functionally insolvent by after after the Terra Luna implosion, but they were, you know, they were playing this leverage game while the tide was was rising with FTT for a while. I mean, I, that's probably part of the reason they were, I mean, it, it's a huge reason they were a $32 billion exchange. 
for all that time. So I'm not exactly sure how long they were, you know, potentially fraudulently selling Bitcoin or, you know, kind of paper trading it. I, I think I think it wasn't too long, but but I, I don't really have a definitive answer there. And part of the reason I've I've been, you know, particularly scrutinizing some of these smaller exchanges like the like crypto.com, right? Like I mean they they sent they said, oh sorry guys, like but yeah, we sent $400 million to Gate, which, you know, I've never even heard of until last week. Um, they said, oh, it was sorry. It was, uh, you know, press the wrong button. It was the wrong address. We white labeled it. And so like, it's crypto.com, you know, functionally insolvent, meaning like, you know, they, they owe their customers more than they actually have in reserves. I have no idea. Um, but when I just look at all of this balance sheet impairment that's happened post 3AC, post FTX, I don't trust any of these entities, none of them. And so I think, you know, it's encouraging to see Bitcoiners withdraw but if any of these guys have balance sheet impairment, um, there's no incentive for them to admit it, right? It's just like they all they all want to, as, as fraudulent as it is, they're just going to try to keep the game going. And it's a confidence shell game, you know? It, it maybe started as good intentions first, but they take a nick and all of a sudden, you know, you, you have a hole and you, you can't let your consumers or your, your users know. So, you know, I would, I would not want to be on crypto.com. I would not want to be on gate. I don't know, you know who uses these platforms, certainly less institutions than, than FTX, right. Or, or Huobi as a third one, but really any of these exchanges, right? Like we, I think we, we got, we got, we still got them like, you know, contagion, as you said, Mark, probably to go here. And, you know, as these counterparties just got totally wrecked, it's also interesting to see like Huobi had like user funds on FTX, right? People were like, oh, they were market making. Like, well, why were user funds market making? So I think there's more, you know, unfortunately, there's more fraud to be revealed here. Um, but the good news, the silver lining, and, and, you know, it's always terrible to see people lose money and, you know, especially to this magnitude. But the good news is we get to start fresh. We get to start with a, with a clean slate on the other side of this. And all that leverage, all of that, you know, fraudulent activity is going to get purged. Uh, and, and, and we're going to build from a really extremely strong, Sturdy foundation on the other side of this. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. As the world moves increasingly towards the mainstream adoption of Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage will make it possible to materialize your assets in real estate. Through the collateralization of mortgages with Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage will be launching lending solutions to allow investors to easily leverage their assets to purchase investment in owner-occupied properties. Moon Mortgage's crypto mortgage will be launching soon for home buyers in Texas, Florida, and Colorado, and will be open to investors in most states across the U.S. for investment properties. Welcome to the future of mortgages. Visit moonmortgage.io today to register your interest and learn more. Moon Mortgage Residential is registered with the NMLS under number 235334. The Bitcoin Magazine podcast is brought to you by CrowdHealth. With open enrollment upon us, what if you didn't have to pay healthcare premiums anymore? What if you can invest in Bitcoin instead? With CrowdHealth, you can choose your doctors, put aside money for your health expenses in your own account, and even hold a large part of it in Bitcoin. Pay one low monthly total to fund an account that is yours. If a large expense comes up, CrowdHealth will crowdfund the bill for you to pay quickly. Go to CrowdHealthBTC.com and use code BTCMAG and experience freedom from health insurance by utilizing Bitcoin. Right now through the end of the year, you can get your first six months for just $99 per month. Don't get stuck in a bad insurance plan again. Instead, go to CrowdHealthBTC.com and use code BTCMAG to sign up. 
CrowdHealth is not health insurance. It's a totally different way of paying for healthcare. Terms and conditions may apply. Come celebrate Bitcoin winter in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from May 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your tickets before prices go up. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. All right, guys. So we're already we're already almost at the halfway point. This is awesome, Mark. Great having you up here, bud. Let's move on a little bit, guys, because because everybody's talking about this. Let Let's move on, Mark. I'd love to get your thoughts on just kind of your macro views in general, right? So the CPI just came out. I think it was last Thursday, seven point seven percent. I'm curious your thoughts. Have we reached peak inflation? Have we reached peak uh, bearishness? What's your What's your take on risk assets kind of moving forward for the foreseeable future? Yeah, great question. You know, I think. Over what time frame? <laughs> you know, anytime we get into discussions, I always try to clarify that, right? So I don't think we've reached peak inflation at all. I think we might be at some of the lowest inflation we'll be at for the decade. So over what time frame? Like over the rest of the decade, right? And so my view is I've talked a lot about my big thesis of these three revolutionary cycles converging and basically how we're kind of at peak centralization and the world moves back to a world of decentralization. And so we see that happening right now, going from a unipolar world to a multipolar world with you know, Russia kind of breaking up over in Europe. And um, obviously now it's even happening in Turkey and then China over here kind of getting separated. And so as the world continues to break up, um, as we continue to decentralize, um, then it changes supply chains. It, it changes where um, parts are and commodities are sourced from and manufacturing hubs. So like the United States is re-onshoring a bunch of stuff right now, like the chip manufacturing, for example. And so as all of this continues to happen, it pushes prices higher. So when you understand inflation, well, what they typically call inflation, which is price inflation, consumer price inflation or CPI, there's two really main causes of that. And so that would be demand. There's too much demand, so demand pull. So so many people want to buy this stuff, it pulls the price up, but there's also cost push. So when my costs go up, it just pushes the prices up. So if I have to pay my employees more, then it pushes my prices up. If I have to pay more for my base commodities, it pushes my prices up. And so as the world continues to decentralize, which I believe is going to continue to happen over the year, over the next couple of years, over the next decade, commodities are going to get more expensive to buy. Manufacturing is going to be more expensive to manufacture. Shipping is going to be more expensive and it's going to push prices up. So I don't think we're at peak. I think in the short term, over the next couple of months, I think we can continue to see CPI go down, right? So I think there's, there's inflation and then there's deflation, but then there's also disinflation. And so disinflation and inflation is sort of the kind of up and down. So it goes from 8% to 7% and 7.5 to 6.5. And those are like disinflation moves, not actually deflationary moves. And so what I expect to happen is a lot more inflation volatility. But I think in the short term, I think we'll see more disinflation. I think we'll see CPI probably continue to come down, partly because they're crushing demand so much. Partly also because they're manipulating that basket. And so they'll continue to play a bunch of games there. But, you know, their goal, and I think Jeff, you and I, we talked about this over the weekend, and I, I really want to just hone in on this point, And I want everyone to go repeat this point to everybody else. But the Fed hates you. What do I, what do I mean by that? Their goal is to crush demand. 
because they are so bent on bringing inflation down, bringing costs down. And the two ways to do that would be one, affect the supply side. They could bring more supply, but they can't. So the only thing they can do is crush demand. The only thing they can do is make you poor. So the Fed wants unemployment to actually go up. That's what they want. The Fed wants you to get paid less at your job. The Fed wants, I don't even want, needs your retirement account and your home to get slashed in half. Because if you're broke, you'll stop going and buying as much stuff. You won't drive as much. You won't fly as much. You won't go out to eat as much. And then the, the inflation, the prices will come down. And so I think we'll see that come down in the meantime or in the short term, which then I think it gives the Fed some, some room to pause. You know, the Fed, they don't, they're not trying to surprise anybody, in my opinion, anyway. They're, they're not trying to surprise anybody. They're trying to telegraph people way out in advance what they're doing. They told us in November of 2021, they were going to start raising rates. We saw Bitcoin start selling off first. NASDAQ started selling off after that. And then they didn't start raising rates until I believe March of 22. And they've also projected where the rate increases would go. And so kind of just on cue, CPI came down. We'll probably see a 50 basis point in, in December, which is exactly what they had predicted. Probably see a 25 in January. And then, you know, what Jerome Powell saying is they want to hold rates really high for a long period of time. So they'll probably sit at about 5%, probably see mortgage rates hit up about 8%. And they're probably just going to hold it there for a while. I, that, that's kind of what I'm expecting over the next maybe six months or so. Yeah, I like to say that sticky high inflation equals a sticky hawkish Fed. And that can be kind of tough for risk assets in general. I think, oh, I, I think that they could actually cause more inflation, right? So the, the law of unintended consequences. And so the more they do, the more these consequences start showing. And so, you know, as they continue to crush inflation, I mean, it's going to cause more problems with supply chain. You know, people are going to quit working for me because they have to drive an hour commuting, but now they can't afford the gas. So now they quit. So now I have to hire new people, but I have to pay them way more. So I push my prices up. So there's all kinds of reasons why this attack on demand could actually cause more inflation. So I think it's a real dangerous game they're playing. Also, we know that energy has been the main driver of inflation and energy has been coming down. A lot of it had to do with manipulation. So the Biden administration was dumping the SPR, the Strategic Petroleum Reserves, dumping those, trying to get gas down before the midterms so they didn't get slaughtered in the midterms. Now we're past that. My guess is that the SPR releases stop. Um, we also know that the Fed was trying to manipulate this oil price and OPEC saw that and OPEC said, hey, we see what you're doing. And guess what? You can go ahead and dump as much from the SPR as you want and we'll just cut production and we can go longer than you can, right? So I think that we'll continue to see, I think we'll start to see energy prices going back up from here. I think we'll see, you know, specifically gas and diesel going back up, which of course will push the cost of everything back up. And to the point you just made, Jeff, I mean, this, the sticky inflation, like I, that's why I just said, I think, you know, for the next couple of years and decades, I think inflation gets more, not less. Just a kind of long-term follow-up question to that. So if, you know, the thought is that over the next decade, we're going through this higher inflationary period, uh, kind of in your view, does, does that mean central banks and, and, and the Fed around the world have to start raising this 2% inflation target higher as or do they get stricter on trying to constrict that inflation lower with, with monetary policy? And, and to that extent too, 
What do you have any thoughts on what that might mean for fiscal policy in the future? It seems like we're potentially on a path and moving in an environment where uh, if we're going through more pain, economic pain for people, there's going to be an open door for higher fiscal policy in terms of whether it's, you know, kind of gas rebates, subsidies uh, to help with kind of these inflationary pressures, which only kind of exaggerate those inflationary pressures. So any thoughts on on those questions or, or that path over the next decade? Yeah. So I think for sure, you know, more fiscal response. So we're going to need it to, to the point that you just made, right? Offsetting some of these high inflationary costs. And that's probably their main tool. I'm in California and we're already seeing that happening in California, right? They were starting to offset people's energy prices or gasoline prices, et cetera. So I think that's a trend and we're seeing it in Europe as well. So I think that's a trend that continues. Um, and then we also know that there's going to need to be more fiscal response from the treasury because they're going to go broke, right? The feds now, the, the fed in 2021 gave $104 billion to the treasury. And now this year, they'll probably have almost a $300 billion loss. So the treasury doesn't have that income on top of it. You know, the treasury also, the biggest asset on the, on the books is student loans. And so now they want to forgive all the student loans. Now the treasury doesn't have that. You know, we have the, the, the most likely we're going to have a massive decrease in tax receipts. And so there's going to need to be way more response there. And I think, again, I would say like, you know, over, over what time frame? And so I think, you know, to the point I was making, like over the next decade, as we continue to decentralize, as these trends go down, I think we're going to need both monetary expansion from the Fed and fiscal res- response. I think the, the way that I'm looking at it, and I, you know, I, I hear it echoed, I think probably Len Alden and, and, you know, a lot of people are talking about, but really I think the playbook is financial repression, right? I mean, it's the playbook from the forties, the IMF put out a white paper on it in 2015. And so the question that you asked about where does this kind of inflation target sit, which we know the Fed has this mandate of 2%. I don't know if they officially change it to be higher, but I think they're going to be okay with it sitting quite a bit higher. I think maybe they'll be okay with it sitting around four or 5% because they're going to need to run this financial repression playbook. And so basically what that means is that they need to keep bond yields low and let inflation run hotter. And then they force everybody into bonds. So get, you know, pensions, et cetera, get the banks into buying the bonds, and then they can just steal and try and bring the GDP back down. So they did in the forties. I think that's what they'll do again. So I think they'll let, they'll just be okay with, I don't know if the policy change, maybe, but let that inflation probably sit in that four or 5% range, bring the bond yields back down a little bit, and then just kind of keep stealing from the people until they bring that GDP back down. Hey, can I, Dylan, I didn't want to jump ahead of you, but I've got a question from the audience that I wanted to throw out. Swarn asks us, and mainly you, Mark, any thoughts on GBTC? For those of us who have it in a retirement account, is this a long-term worry or should they switch out to MSTR? This is not individual investment advice, by the way, but just love your general thoughts on those things. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say right off the bat that I am not an expert in the GBDC. I have not really done a bunch of due diligence and, and research into it. We did have a pretty deep discussion on, on it just over the last weekend. I think it's what's sitting somewhere in a 40 to 45% discount, something like that. You know, the markets are pretty efficient. You know, why are they giving it that discount? There's obviously some risk. I think, you know, buying a 45% discount, I think the risk would be, you can buy it. I believe their cost basis is like 2%, but I think when you add in all the fees, you're probably losing like three or 4% a year. So basically what you're betting on is that the book will get marked back up to par before you've 
eaten all the fees. And so I guess over 10 years, you'd lose 40% in fees. And so you're hoping that maybe, you know, some big bank comes and just buys them out. Some, maybe some sovereign that wants to get a hold of a bunch of Bitcoin at one time at a discount could just come buy the entire book and then just reprice it back to par. I think that's kind of what you're betting on. And you're hoping that it happens before your money gets eaten alive in fees. For me, I think for the average person, I don't know if that's a game that they want to play. I certainly don't want to play it. That's the way that I see it. Like I said, I'm really not an expert and I haven't dug super deep into it. So feel free to correct me if, if I got any of that wrong. No, I appreciate your take on that. Thanks thanks for, for your response. And just to the people out in the audience, just to remember, right? Not your keys, not your coins. So even if you do buy things like GBTC or even like MicroStrategy, right? Giga Chad, Michael Saylor, the CEO, founder of that company, it's still not technically your Bitcoin if you're buying those things. So I think our kind of uniform recommendation is to buy your own Bitcoin and get it off of exchanges and put it into cold storage if you're able to do that. Dylan, sorry, you are. Oh, go ahead, Mark. I was just going to say on, on top of what you said about not your keys, you know, I think it's a very, I think it's a pretty low risk in my opinion, but it's certainly something to be aware of that, you know, depends on what happens regulatory wise, you know, obviously there's lots of talk going around about potentially, you know, limiting your own ability to self-custody your Bitcoin. There could be potential where exchanges aren't allowing people to withdraw their Bitcoin or something like that. So I think there's some risk there. I think I think the risk is pretty low. But again, why would you bother to take that risk, right? Just de-risk the whole thing and just custody your own Bitcoin. Regards to in regards to GBDC, one of the things that I saw, which which I mean makes total sense. I had never just for some reason I'd never thought of this. The fee is two percent of NAV, right? So Mark, you were throwing out a, a three, four percent fee number there. A lot of like, you know, one of the things that I never saw discussed once this thing turned from a premium to a discount. Is that, yeah, it's 2% of NAV, but if it's trading at a, say, 50% discount to NAV, you're paying a 4% fee. So that fee just kind of, you know, if, it, if it's at a severe discount for a while, you're taking quite the churn. And, it, and you know, in a weird sort of way, it, it gets actually less attractive. Well, I mean, it's attractive because of the upside, right? And up, the upside to Bitcoin, like the Bitcoin cost equivalent of GBDC right now is like 9K. So if it returns to par, you do quite well. What we, you know, we just have to ask, like, is that, is that conversion ever coming to an ETF? And what's the real incentive from a legal perspective for them to do? Because they essentially are just printing, you know, a 2% fee on 600,000 Bitcoin. That's quite a good business model. It's not ideal for the holders of it. But I think in terms of, an, an, you know, a retirement portfolio play, I will say we have no affiliation with them. Unchained Capital and other businesses offer Bitcoin multi-state custody services, spot Bitcoin in a retirement account. That's something you're looking for. But it's probably, you know, GBTC is a, a decent Bitcoin type exposure if you have no other options. Yeah, I would only add to that. Obviously, GBTC, you know, is pursuing that as a strategy, suing the SEC. I think of it as like if there is a spot ETF approved timeline in my head is more like 2024 and GBTC is is the likely one to have it if you think it's coming. So, but it's it's probably just going to be sometime, especially after regulation like this or an event like this, where the scrutiny is going to want to come down so much more, despite that, um, you know, a spot Bitcoin ETF here would, would probably help kind of limit some of this downside that we just went through over the last week. Yeah, Sam, though, do you think that timetable gets pushed out? I mean, you said by 2024, I mean, Gary Gensler has been very vocal about why he doesn't want to approve the spot ETF, which I don't think is a good reason, but you know, too much 
not enough regulatory tools to monitor and, and, you know, check for fraud. Given what just happened, do you think that even pushes the back the odds? Yeah, I guess it's hard to say in, in one way. I mean, I think this is anyone in this space has got to be saying now, hey, well, why don't we have spot Bitcoin ETFs? I mean, that would have easily been, I think, helpful in in terms of giving people another option if you don't want to, you know, have private custody. But I, I probably lean towards it pushes the timeline even further out now because you're going to have a wave of regulation and scrutiny and kind of every three-letter industry kind of name from the government wanting to get in and make sure this is done. So it's probably just going to, you know, bring more crippling regulation pressure here in, here in the U.S. I think, I think the, the long-term, the odds of, of an, an ETF here have definitely gone up. I mean, anyone that was paying attention to FTX and Alameda before the, the fraud and the, the shady balance sheet and all of that stuff even came to question before Luna and 3AC and, you know, no one even in crypto had muttered contagion once. <laughs> um, it was pretty much known that Alameda was was trading against its users, right? Like, I mean, Arthur Hayes got you know, faced federal prison and settled for house arrest and millions of dollars of fines for the same reason. And I think, you know, for, for whatever reason, regulators and just really everyone at large just like kind of turned a blind eye or even acknowledged it, but just like almost some of the traders I, I spoke to, like almost acknowledged it as a challenge. They're like, yeah, we're playing against the house, but like it's half the fun knowing that like, you know, Almeida was and the FTX were really one and the same. And, and you, you did see like Gary Gensler and the guys that that CC talk about you know, the spot ETF, one of the reasons was like, well, just like market manipulation. So like, is this event a positive for the industry on that basis? Well, not right now. It's obviously pretty bad, but on the long term, getting rid of these fraudulent actors uh, and clearing it up from like a regulatory perspective could be a good thing. And I think it probably improves the, the odds of a spot ETF, despite, you know, the, the painful path that we took to get there. One one good thing that I like, I, I've, I've been liking to kind of use this whole situation, this whole black eye on the industry to look at. And if we want to jump to like the bigger macro picture and kind of then talking through like what's going to happen over the next couple of years and decade, I think this, this whole situation with FTX and FTT is a really good example. It's like this little miniature example that we can see that shows what's happening in a larger system. And so when you look at like the situation where you had FTX and Alameda, like, like these two sister companies, and so companies like FTX would create a token out of thin air, call it FTT. And then Alameda would create this value for it artificially. And then people would start trading this FTT token because they thought it had value. But then when people realized they didn't want to hold that FTT token anymore, people started dumping it, right? CZ maybe got the ball rolling and started, said he was going to dump it. Everyone started dumping it. And then FTX, the company is stuck trying to defend that currency. So now they're selling any asset they can to try to buy the FTT token to hold up that valuation to show that it's still there. And of course, we had 20 million short sellers pile in and just pushed it down. But I think if you take that exact example and then look at Japan, right? And so Japan, they create the yen token out of thin air and they call it fiat. So by decree, they give it value, sort of like the market makers gave FTT value. And then people start using the yen because they think it has value. But very quickly, people realize that they don't want to hold the yen. And so they start selling the yen short. And now Japan is in the same situation, trying to dump whatever they can to prop up the yen token. And it's the exact same thing. And now Japan is dumping their cash. Now they're dumping treasuries to try to prop up that token. And so 
I think it's helpful maybe on this macro call to kind of talk about that for a minute because this is like the bigger forces. And so I think if you look at the FTT and now you see the yen situation, you can look at the uh, the pound, the British pound situation, you can look at the ECB euro situation, and even the Fed situation is exactly the same, right? At the end of the day, they've created this dollar token that nobody really wants. We want goods and services. So when I buy a good and service, I'm selling the dollar short and they're trying to defend it. And I think um, just like we saw FTX blow up, I think we're going to see Japan and then the UK and then the ECB all blow up kind of the same. And that was uh, while, thing. while, 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 just finish. while, while FTX might've been a black eye for Bitcoin now, when those blow up, that's going to push people into Bitcoin. Totally. I, I think it was, it was super interesting to watch kind of the analogy of like, once it was known that, that they were levered, it was like on, on a, on a little mini scale. And obviously it turned out to, it turned out to be a deleveraging for the whole crypto space, but you saw like, oh, these guys are levered. They're tweeting out 22. Like, why do they care about this? And we saw like literally a classic speculative attack, you know, usually like the, the George Soros kind of breaking the bank of England is like a, a really, a really historical moment in that, in that aspect. Mm-hmm. Uh, but totally like in terms of, in terms of the yen, in terms of these major, major currencies and, and not so much now, cause you know, surprisingly the emerging markets are in a really good place relative to some of the developed markets this time around this, this debt cycle, but you know, like interest rates and, and the price of money being a completely relative game, if we're talking fiats or really anything, if, and you know, when you kind of get push and pull between sovereigns and, and, and one's tightening and one's not, or between central banks rather, I think that's, I mean, that's, that's what's, that what, that's what played out with FTT and, and with the Bitcoin case, it's, it's pretty clear to everybody that, that, you know, knows how these cycles work. The Fed's going to ease again. Cause they, cause they'll have to, maybe they get the inflation down. Maybe they don't. And they just capitulate. Um, but then, you know, Bitcoin becomes one of those, one of those things where everybody shorts the dollar, they short the euro, they short the yen, you know, implicitly by, by borrowing money. And, and then everyone floods into Bitcoin. And obviously that's the supply and elasticity is, is what makes it fly. And so I, I love the analogy. Cause I, cause Mark, I think it was, it was surprising to me that not many people like connected those dots in terms of like what actually went down with FTT. And why even even if they had five hundred million to absorb, like CZ's selling, it wasn't it like it was over uh, once once you could kind of conclude that they were levered because all, all the speculators just just poured on. That's great stuff. I'm going to start calling it the dollar token from now on, just to kind of emphasize this fact. How funny this whole system is. Anyways, it's all going down. It's all going to burn, baby. Hey, so we only got like 10 minutes left. A lot of us have a hard stop at the top of the hour. Mark, you, so totally changing gears here. You just recently did a pretty sweet report on Elon Musk and his purchase of Twitter and and why you think he took it private and what his kind of 20-year game plan is. Can you give us an overview of that and, and just let us know your thoughts? Yeah, we'll run through that real quick. I think it's, 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 it's kind of an interesting story and it's 20 years in the making. And so if you look at Elon Musk and like where he got his start from, he started a company on x.com which then kind of rolled into paypal which he co-founded with what they call the paypal mafia but peter thiel and what they really tried to do was not just change payments but change the financial system peter thiel spoke at the bitcoin conference 2022 and in his presentation he showed a video from 1999 of himself when he was talking about launching paypal and what they were trying to do so in that video from 1999 i didn't remember it but he basically kind of laid out how, again, 1999, how mobile phones would grow, 
and how they would get to, you know, 1 billion phones over the next five years. And once you could have money on a phone, no nation or government would be able to shut it down. That was kind of the, the point that he made. He said they wouldn't be able to shut it down without taking down the entire internet and cellular phone networks. And so they kind of had this vision and he had these charts and graphs in that presentation at the Bitcoin conference of how a PayPal wanted to create not just a payment layer on top of the dollar tokens, but actually create its own financial system. And so I think, and I had met Peter Thiel after that event and he's a Ayn Rand disciple. So he's like super based and that was their plan. I believe Elon Musk and Peter Thiel were on that same page. That didn't come to fruition. It didn't work out. Um, PayPal ended up just becoming in Peter Thiel's own words, like a funnel. So it became just a payment network on top of the US dollar system. And of course, both of them left and got cashed out huge. In 2017, um, Elon Musk purchased the x.com domain back from PayPal. Undisclosed ter terms, but potentially it was six to $8 million to buy that domain name. At the time he tweeted that and said that he had sentimental reasons. And that's all he said. But it seems like like he's been on this mission to change payments. Well, then all of a sudden here comes Twitter. Now he said that his reason for doing it was for humanity. He said that the social, the, the town square was too important. Now the town square, which we typically think about where people meet and exchange ideas, but it might also be the town square where there's shops and stores and commerce as well. And so he said he was doing it for humanity. He said the town square was too important. And so maybe it wasn't just speech, maybe it was payments. Well, then we see in May, he had a meeting with his investors, the potential investors for um, this, this uh, Twitter takeover. And he pitched something called Project X, which the details weren't totally disclosed over, but he did say that he thought it could bring in like a uh, hundred million users and you know billions of dollars of revenue. And so it looks like he's thinking about being able to take Twitter and turn it back into a a new payment system and not just a payment layer, but a new payment system. Now, uh, we know that this is actually, since I made that video, more has transpired. And so there were some meeting minutes that got kind of released from a meeting last week where he basically said as much and, and <laughs> to a lot of people's in hatred, uh, if you had a blue check before, now all these new blue check people came in. And, you know, a lot of them are nobodies. Even I've seen even Anon accounts being verified. But what he said in this leaked meeting was that this was the first step towards this new payment network, because now he's gotten however many millions of users to connect their bank account to their Twitter account. And so now your bank account is, or your credit card or whatever is automatically connected and you're automatically paying $8. And he said the next step would be for them to say, okay, now you have $8 of credit on the Twitter network that you can go spend and how quickly and easily it would just transform everybody. And so he seems to be on this path. Of course, he has Starlink as well. So back to the original Peter Thiel video where no nation could shut it down unless they shut down the internet. <laughs> He's got his own inter internet as well. Obviously, the states aren't going to like to be subverted. So we already know that. We can see what happened when Zuckerberg tried to do this. But of course, nobody likes Zuckerberg. Right. He, he got busted for stealing people's data and all, all this, where Musk was previous to the Twitter takeover, kind of like even the liberals darling. Right. He was going to save fossil fuels and push electric vehicles and whatnot. So maybe Musk has an easier time, but I believe that's his vision. It all lines up. He's doing it. He's acting on it. It's happening. And, uh, you know, of course, all of us are happy about that. Also, the other piece I would add is that um, 
if you look at who he brought on as investors, which unfortunately for us Bitcoiners maybe isn't so promising, but you know, he brought on some of the PayPal mafia back, the original PayPal guys, but he also brought on CZ from Binance. Now, this maybe isn't the best turn of events. Maybe we do know that Binance has their own Binance chain. And what they were doing is they were going to these nations and saying, hey, we'll launch your own token. We'll build it for you. We'll have it on our chain. So we know they're already doing that. Uh, potentially, there could be something there. Uh, hopefully, it goes the other way, which I kind of drew some, 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 some lines to. I don't have a lot of fact, but of course, we know Twitter's founder, Jack Dorsey, had left to go spend the rest of his life working just on Bitcoin specifically. And we know that um, Elon Musk and Jack Dorsey have been talking, so maybe there's some connection there. And then maybe for a ray of, uh, of hope, was it just two days ago? I think it was Saturday night or no, Friday night. Elon Musk tweeted out the lightnings emoji and said soon, like lightning soon. And I don't know what that means, but I think Elon Musk is trying to build a new payment system and maybe we're all on board that right now. That's a pretty interesting theory, man. And, and it definitely makes sense. <clears throat> Thanks for getting into that. Hey, so, so we're actually, all, we're in our like final couple of minutes real quick. Sam, if you're available, by the way, uh, Dylan had to drop off because his phone died. He just messaged me. So he, he, so he didn't mean to offend anybody by dropping off. Sam, I wonder if you can give the audience real quick, just a quick little update on what you and Dylan are working on this week for Bitcoin Magazine Pro. Yeah, definitely. So if you're familiar with Bitcoin Magazine Pro, we have, you know, kind of free and paid kind of market research newsletter that Dylan and I cover along with Jeff. So last week, you know, we were trying to get ahead and, and warn people of what was going on with FTT token and FTX. Then we also talked about some of the counterparty risk that we're playing out. This week, you know, we're trying to cover all the details set to start with with a lot of the, what's going on with the exchanges right now. The exchanges are in the spotlight. Everyone's trying to grasp over the last couple of days which ones are potentially solvent, which ones are not. So try to dig into that and what it means for kind of Bitcoin in the short term. So if you like that type of research, data analysis, charts, stuff like that, check it out. It's in uh, both of our bios and bitcoinmagazinepro.com as well. Yeah, that's awesome. And Dylan, sorry you pop back up, man. Any final words for Mark before we close it up? I think he's a still a listener. Phone is dead. He, I see him as speaker. It's all messed up. Anyways, Mark, brother, it's been awesome having you up. I feel like we could have gone for another couple of hours talking to you. You're just a, a fountain of information. So thanks for coming on. Where, where, where can you direct people to go to find the best of your work? I know you're obviously here on Twitter, but where else can people go to find your work? Yeah, so I put out most of my work on, on my YouTube channel. Just search Mark Boss on YouTube and you'll find all those videos mainly kind of Bitcoin macro and freedom topics. So yeah, just here on Twitter, I probably spend way too much time here. And then you can find me on YouTube as well. Cool. One last chance. Dylan, can, are, are you available? Yeah, I'm, I'm here. Sorry, I'm a, my phone died. Um, yeah, Mark, just appreciate you having us up. Uh, I, I heard Sam give the, give the handoff to what we're doing. But yeah, uh, for, for everyone that, that tuned in, we do these uh, twice a week now. And, and Mark, we'll be sure to have you back on sometime, man. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. I appreciate it. And thanks for everyone listening in. And uh, let's stay strong. Thanks so much, everyone. Hey, guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. Come celebrate Bitcoin winter in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from May 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your tickets before prices go up. Bitcoin is for everyone. 
lefties, righties, and rejectors of the false dichotomy alike. And that is why the newest Bitcoin Magazine print edition is called the Orange Party Issue. It features articles by President Naya Bukele, Jeff Deist, Beauty On, Natalie Smolensky, Eric Kaysen, Max Kaiser, and Jimmy Song. Get your copy at your local Barnes & Noble's bookstore or from the Bitcoin Magazine store at store.bitcoinmagazine.com and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off your annual subscription today. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com.